Good morning once again. Um, looking forward to opening God's Word this morning as we return to our, our learning adventure, our study through the book of Ruth. Uh, this is week number three, and today's message is called History. History. I want to start off by asking you to think about a statement, to think about a phrase, and maybe you've heard it before, but I want to actually stop and think about what it means. I'll say it and then give you a moment to think about it, then maybe get some feedback. Mystery belongs to God, and history belongs to us. Mystery belongs to God, history belongs to us. As you think about that, what do you, what do you think that's pointing us toward? What's that telling us? Mystery belongs to God, history belongs to us. Any thoughts? God has a plan that gradually reveals to us, but we're the ones acting it out. So okay. God has a plan and He reveals it to us, but we're actually living that out. We're actually experiencing that as He's revealing it to us. Okay, mystery belongs to God. History belongs to us. As you think about questions like this, and in the context of Scripture and of the life with God, it's important to stop sometimes and ask, what does this mean? What do ideas like this mean? What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about ourselves? Now, this, this statement, that question, or that uh, phrase, mystery belongs to God and history belongs to us, I didn't make that up. That actually comes from Scripture. Um, Deuteronomy 29.9 reads, The Lord our God has secrets known to no one. We are not accountable for them, but we and our children are accountable forever for all that He has revealed to us so that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. Have you ever thought about this? That God's not told us everything, right? We talked eons ago about how Scripture is sufficient in it, God has revealed all that is required of us to live a God-pleasing life, to pursue holiness, to follow after Jesus. It's all been told to us in Scripture, and that is sufficient. But, has God told us everything there is to know about Him, about His will, about His creative work and uh, before the, the dawn of creation? No! That's what we'll spend eternity uh, being slack-jawed about. Standing in God's presence like, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's crazy. So scripture is sufficient, but it's not everything. There's stuff that is hidden in the mystery of God that we have yet to even know. Mystery belongs to God. History belongs to us. What I believe that statement means, I think it means that there are many things known to God in His perfect knowledge, in His sovereignty, which we do not know, which He has chosen not to reveal to us. And here's the good news. We're not accountable for the things He's not told us. Okay, You're not accountable for what you don't know, that He's not revealed. Uh, we're not responsible for knowing and obeying those things that we don't know, which He has not revealed. So, much has been revealed to us by God 
through what's called revelation. Not just the book and the Bible, but through this activity of revealing Himself and His will to us through revelation. Uh, in theological terms, there's basically two categories of revelation. There's general revelation and there's specific revelation. So a general revelation is generally regarding creation, that which we see in the created world that tells us about a God, about, a, about an, uh, if there's a, a design, there's a designer. <laughs> we can tell things, we can intuit things about God through his general revelation in um, creation. Another aspect of general revelation is conscience. That in our human conscience, we understand right and a bit of right and wrong, things we ought to do and ought not do, right? Uh, specific revelation, or special, yeah, special revelation, is generally considered to be uh, Scripture. God breaking in and saying, hey, write this down. I have something to tell you. I am God. And you need to know these things. The other uh, aspect or category or part of specific revelation is what? Sunday school answer, anyone? Jesus, right. Jesus. That was easy. That was like the ultimate low-hanging fruit right there. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is the epitome of special revelation, of God stepping into our midst and revealing something of His heart and of His will to us, to mankind. It is the things that God has revealed that are important to us. The things that God has revealed, those things serve to um, inform our living and direct our obedience. We treasure those things because they serve to orient us. They serve to identify us. They serve to ground us in this life with God. The revelation of God in history, which is most uh, exquisitely saved for us in the narrative of Scripture, has become then our source of truth in this life. This is why we can look to Scripture as our, our, our guide for faith and practice. If we choose, if we desire to follow after God and to, to live a life pleasing to Him, if we, des if we desire to follow after Jesus, begin here. Look to Scripture. We are born, and then we awaken into this grand story. This grand story of God's creative activity. And thus, we live into the ongoing telling of how He is sustaining and redeeming all things through His Son, Jesus Christ. So it's not just looking backwards, saying, yep, I believe the Bible. We actually are born and we awaken into and find that we are a living part of this ongoing telling of the work God is doing in the world. That which He is doing through Jesus Christ in making all things new. There is a way in which we are to live. There is a way that we are to live, in which we are to live, the way of truth, of beauty, of goodness, and of love. This way is given to us most enduringly in the Bible, yes, but it is enlivened by the Holy Spirit. God's own Holy Spirit is what comes uh, to bear on our lives and it takes the Word of God and makes it living and active, applicable in our lives. Perhaps you've had this experience where you're, you're determined, you're disciplining yourself to spend time in Scripture and you read through some pretty long and boring passages, say in the Old Testament, but then all of a sudden you just get broadsided by this passage of Scripture that you're like, I don't think I've ever read this before. What in the world? It just kind of lays you out and you sense that God is speaking to you through that passage of Scripture written thousands and thousands of years ago. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, enlivening 
the words in the text of Scripture, but also illuminating your mind so that you can see it, identify it, receive it, and be convicted by it and changed, grown by it. You've had that experience, right? It happens. As you make available yourself to Scripture, you find that the Holy Spirit is the one coming and enlivening it. In the Bible, we do find instructions for living a good, godly life. Okay? Hear me say that. If you want to live a good, God-pleasing life, look to Scripture. But we miss the point if we characterize the Bible as simply a handbook for living or a list of do's and don'ts, a compendium of dictates and directions for uh, moral behavior. If that's all the Bible is to you, you've, you've, you've missed the point. It's not just a, a, a list of rules. It's not just a book full of commandments. The Bible is so much more than just a list of rules and commandments. It is many things, but all of these things are saved for us in the context of a story. Of a story. Told, a story that is told among a people, a story that is rooted in places, in particular times and circumstances. Oddly, the Bible is filled with genealogies. Does anyone know what genealogies are? The Bible is filled with genealogies, which are the genealogies are uh, genealogy is the study of family ancestral lines. Perhaps you've run into this. Big swaths of the Old Testament, and like the whole beginning of Matthew is like genealogy and we don't get it confession time has anyone ever just skipped that part yeah why are there so many genealogies in scripture I think it tells us that what God is doing in the world and what he's trying to communicate to us it takes place in the form of story that plays out among people people and places the Bible is filled with them, and they can be tedious, but when you think about it, it's telling us something about the nature and the value of the story. You see, the sacred texts of Judaism and of Christianity, they are filled, uniquely filled, with lists of names, names of families, uh, of mothers and fathers, of sons, of daughters. Seriously, so many begats. I mean, the Bible's full of begats. This guy begat that guy. And you're like, who cares? That's a crazy name. <laughs> Where'd they come up with these names? Begat, begat, begat. All of the commandments, all of the thou shouts, they take place in the context of family lineages. Indeed, the book of Ruth itself begins and ends with names, begins and ends with family origins. We do well, then, to apprehend how unique this is among holy writ in, in religious writings. We're familiar with the Bible because that's one we've read most in our life. I mean, anyone else, I mean, say, no, 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 other religious writings are equally as familiar to me as the Bible. Probably not. You've been steeped in the Bible growing up, so this doesn't seem strange to you. But among all the religious writings in the world, none other is so full of family names, of begats. This is unique and meaningful and important. Uh, Eugene Peterson points it out this way. He says, when Israel wrote, listen to this, this is so insightful, I think. When Israel wrote about God, she wrote history. 
Among other peoples in the ancient world, there was nothing comparable. Israel's neighbors wrote down historical data. The reign of kings, lists of cities conquered in battle, treaty obligations, business transactions, but none of them wrote history. Narratives in which the decisions of people and the response they lived were told in relation to the decisions of God and His actions. When Israel's contemporaries wrote about God, they wrote myths and legends. Hearsay gossip about the gods, not true stories about persons. The Hebrews were the world's first historians. The Hebrews were the, first world, were the world's first historians because they were convinced that God worked among them when the, where, where they were each day. They believed that what they did, whether in faith or unbelief, sin or righteousness, obedience or rebellion, was significant. Because it was significant, it was capable of being narrated as a story. That is, as an account in which what God did had consequences and was part of a structured purpose. A story begins, has a middle, and ends. Everything in it has a point, a meaning. Nothing is irrelevant. Each character, however minor, plays a part. And so the Hebrews wrote the history of men and women created in the image of God, while their contemporaries wrote myths of the gods, imagined in the image of their neighbors. Is that startling to you? That yes, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they understood that God was doing something in the world, but they wrote it down as if it had something to do with their own lives. That they were participant in what God was doing in the world. And so they started writing down what God was doing, and they wrote it down as history. There's a storyline here. So perhaps we need to sit with this insight. Because what Israel recognized, what the Hebrews recognized, is for us to recognize as well. Every one of us matters. Everybody matters. Everything we do has significance. Nothing in this life is irrelevant. Everything has a point. Even if you don't recognize it, everything has a point. How does this make you feel? That every step I take, everything I do has a purpose, is infused with meaning. We are not spectators in the life with God. We are not spectators in the life with God. We are not on the sidelines looking in on what He is, happens to be doing in history among other people in far-off places in distant times. You are part of the story. In Christ, you are part of that story. You are actually part of what God is up to in the world. Thus, you have a part to play. History is being written through you even now. That feels heavy. <laughs> that feels important. That God has intention, has purpose, has, has investment in me that I will live into my part in His story. The story that He's even telling now. I love how C.S. Lewis characterizes this dynamic, uh, how he characterizes our significance and our meaning. He says, oh, listen to this, so good. I'm going to read it again at the very end. So, It is not an abstraction called humanity that is to be saved. It is you. It is you, your soul. 
And in some sense yet to be understood, even your body that was made for high and holy places. All that you are, every fold and crease of your individuality was devised from all eternity to fit God as a glove fits a hand. All that intimate particularity which you can hardly grasp about yourself, much less communicate to your fellow creatures, is no mystery to him. He made those ins and outs that he might fill them. Then he gave your soul so curious a life because it is the key designed to unlock that door of all the myriad doors in him. That God, on purpose, redeemed you, saved you, called you to himself. He has an idea. He has a plan. So because of this, I think we should all stand a little taller a certain dignity comes with that, doesn't it? We should all stand a little taller. We should walk with a little more confidence, knowing that we matter. Our lives have significance, and what we do matters. It can change things. This understanding, then, helps better prepare us, then, to engage Ruth's story, the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth is tucked into our Bibles between the book of Judges and the Samuels. Okay, so at the end of Judges, we get into First and Second Samuel. Well, tucked right between them is the book of Ruth. It takes place among everyday people. It takes place among everyday people in a time when the judges ruled, when everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. What does this tell us? It tells us that the story plays out uh, with people a lot like us. It's dropped into history in a place that's not too dissimilar to our own. People a lot like us in a time not too unlike our own. What do I mean? Well, we don't have a king. Uh, and ultimately, we really don't gather around. We don't agree upon a unified source of truth and authority anymore. We are a little judgy. And we're keen on following our own hearts, doing whatever seems right in our own eyes, right? Yeah, so we can kind of get the world in which this story is being told. Eugene Peterson says about the book of Ruth, the most important implication of the book of Ruth is simply its form. It is a story. Ruth is the instance of a person uprooted, a person obscure and alienated who learned to understand her story as a modest but nevertheless essential part of the vast epic whose plot is designed by God's salvation. So today, let's return to the story of Ruth. Let's return to the beginning of that story, uh, and let's hear its context. And let's uh, hear and, and sense its earthy rhythm. If you, can, if you can, turn to the very first part of Ruth. And remember, go to the Judges, turn right. You'll find Ruth. Today, we're actually going to get a running start at it. We're going to start in Judges chapter 21. So whatever page Ruth 1 is on, look over to the left. Uh, we'll start in Judges chapter 21, verses 23 through 25, and we'll read on over into Ruth 1, 1 through 5, okay? Judges 21, verse 23. So the men of Benjamin did what they were told, or did as they were told. Each man caught one of the women as she danced in the celebration and carried her off to be his wife. <laughs> they returned to their own land and they rebuilt their towns and lived in them. Then the people of Israel departed by tribes and families and they returned to their own homes. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. 
Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man named a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. I'm gone three for three on Ephrathites, guys. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah, and when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone, without her two sons or her husband. So why did I start at the, begin the end of Judges there? Well, because that's funny. I mean, seriously, that's funny that they carried off. <laughs> they picked out women at some dancing celebrations like, I want this one. And they carried her off like a caveman to be her wife. Why? What's going on in this story? Well, don't miss this. What God is doing is being told <laughs> is as a story taking place among people. People that do stuff like that. From the outset, we recognize the backdrop of Ruth's story. Her story takes place uh, both within the general stream of history, but within the specific history of Israel. There's stuff going on. If you want to learn more about why the men of Benjamin were carrying off women to be their wives, you need to read that on your own. I'm going to leave that as like a little bit of a, a cliffhanger. You need to go find out on your own. But there's a story there. There's specific real stuff happening that's led them to be doing this thing. It's happening in the specific history of Israel. To try and read Ruth's story in a vacuum and to filter it for only theological value is to really tragically miss the point. It's to miss the point. To tragically miss the implications of the story itself. Here's what we need to not miss. God is working out the mysteries of His salvation plan within the histories of His chosen people in both expected and unexpected ways in Israel and in Moab. God is revealing His mysteries of His redemptive ambitions in the histories of the local places in the world. Notice that this story takes, specific, takes place specifically in Bethlehem-type places. These kind of overlooked, out-of-the-way places. Places that if we go there and we find that God is at work, we are surprised. But God is full of surprises. God is intent on telling His story in and through our stories, unveiling His will up against our own will, interposing His heavenly reality in the middle, right in the middle of our daily reality. And this is remarkable. This activity of God, this, this characteristic of God is remarkable. It should awaken us to the fact that God is on the move here and now. He is on the move in our place and in our time. So we really should pay attention because who wants to miss that? Who wants to miss what God is doing here and now around us, in us, and through us? Yes, the Hebrews may have been the world's first historians, but get this, they were not the world's last historians. They were not the last historians. You and me, we can begin right now to see the significance of our own story because it too is playing out within the long arc 
of God's story, my story, and your story. Together we are adding notes. We are adding words and phrases to the grand telling, the, the sharing of the good news revealed in Jesus Christ. We are living that out here and now. You and me, we can begin to tell that story to the world. That story of how God's mystery and our history have met and now have deep, life-changing meaning in Jesus Christ. We all have a part to play. So let's begin today. I'll finish with uh, the rereading that C.S. Lewis quote as we meditate on that, and then we'll pray. It is not an abstraction called humanity that is to be saved. It is you. It is your soul, and in some sense yet to be understood, even your body that was made for the high and holy places. All that you are, every fold and crease of your individuality was devised from all eternity to fit God as a glove fits a hand. All that intimate particularity which you can hardly grasp about yourself, much less communicate to your fellow creatures, is no mystery to him. He made those ins and outs that he might fill them. Then he gave your soul so curious a life because it is the key designed to unlock that door of all the myriad doors in him. I hope that's exciting to you. I hope that beckons you into a deeper walk with Jesus. And it all begins in that place of placing our faith in Jesus Christ because that's where it begins. That's where we begin to, uh, to, to discover, to step into, to, to receive that invitation. It's when we are saved. It's when we are, to use biblical language, born again. Born into a new kind of living. And it's in this living that we have this pervasive sense of God's goodness, but also God's activity in the world, and that we're a part of that. Why else would Jesus say, as he's getting ready to ascend and go back to the Father, would he say to his disciples, now go, go, I'm sending you. Go and make disciples. Teach everyone to obey what I've commanded. Share the good news. Breathe life into the world. Go. I'm leaving this in good hands. I'm leaving it with you. And I'll send my Holy Spirit to empower you, to equip you, enable you to, to see this bear fruit in the world. That's exciting. And it all begins with Jesus. And so if, if you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus, oh, by all means, hear the invitation. God is calling you to step into that kind of a life. One that is centered and grounded in that faith. Faith in Jesus. And then uh, you would uh, come to faith and then you would go from here and start discovering more and more that God's up to something in the world. And He desires you to be a part of that. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness. Thank You for the stories that have been saved for us in Scripture. Thank you for Scripture. Wow, that we have a, just a, a deep well to which we can re, to return to over and over again and learn about you, learn about us, learn about what you're doing in the world uh, and how we can be a part of that. How we can just marvel at all that Christ has accomplished for us through His finished work on the cross, through His life, His death, His resurrection. God, we do bear a, a special dignity, a dignity that is unique in all creation, that we bear your image, and that through Christ that image can be redeemed and restored and that can be uh, reflected into the world. And we can see people uh, saved and restored. Lord, I thank you for that. And I pray that my brothers and sisters in here that are following after Jesus, I pray that they would be instilled with a new sense of wonder and, and urgency, a desire to not miss out. 
God, I pray that as we look at Ruth's story, we'd start to see more of our own story. That yes, you are at work among everyday people. Yes, you're doing important work in overlooked everyday places. So God, I pray that we'd be attentive. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand all that you're doing and all that you desire to do. Lord, I pray for my friends who've never followed Jesus. I pray that you would, uh, through the work of your Holy Spirit, bring their hearts to a place of, of conviction, that they too would repent, that they would turn from trying to live life on their own terms and turn toward Jesus, place their faith in Him, and let, the, let Jesus be Lord of their life, to be King of their life. Lord, there's much work to be done. And this morning, as best we're able, we make ourselves available to you through your Holy Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. What I'd like to do is, uh, I think someone will come and maybe play some music, but uh, one thing we're trying to discipline ourselves to do better at is just take a moment or two to reflect and to pray. You know, we spend time singing, worshiping, praying, opening the Word, but then we kind of rush through announcements and stuff. Let's pause right here. And let's sit with the Lord. Let's open up our hearts. Let's have that conversation. Maybe you've been waiting for a while to have um, uh, with the Lord. And let's just not rush this moment, okay? So we'll just have some piano music and uh, just take your time. Let's sit with the Lord and pray.